Welcome to the Virtual Vascular Podcast. My name is Petar Zlatanovic. Today we are going to dive deeper into the Virtual Vascular textbook chapter dedicated to the symptomatic carotid disease and acute carotid syndrome. We are pleased to have Professor Ross Naylor and Professor Sebastian Debus with us today so we can find out more about their expert opinion on such interesting topics. Professor Naylor used to work at the Department of Vascular Surgery in Leicester, UK, uh, chair of the previous and the latest ESVS guidelines on the management of the carotid and vertebral artery disease. Professor Sebastian Debus works currently in Hamburg, Germany, and is uh, an ESVS program committee chair and one of the editors of the Virtual Vascular Textbook. Both have a key interest in carotid artery disease management. Thank you both for joining us today. So, Professor Ross Naylor, let's start uh, with you. I would like to ask you, so during your long career as a vascular surgeon, what are, in your opinion, are the three most important advances in the treatment of symptomatic carotid artery disease? Thank you, Peter. Well, first and foremost is the uh, adoption of evidence-based practice. Uh, In the mid-80s, it was a bit like the Wild West, and... uh, decisions were made by what I call intuitive reasoning, that is daddy knows best. And for the first time we use science to determine practice. And because the trials were so large, we were able to get meaningful subgroup analyses, which meant for the first time in 2003, we were able to recognize the importance of intervening very early. The second is the evolution and improvement of carotid interventions, initially surgery and then latterly stenting. Now, in the randomized trials, transfemoral stenting is still associated with a higher 30-day death and stroke rate than endarterectomy, especially in the first 7 to 14 days. But it now remains to be seen how, how well TCAR can fare in these first 14 days. There's only been one registry, uh, which was not complete in terms of all participants having the data, but it's, it's important and we need to know more. As with every other part of the body, Less invasive treatment methods are gradually replacing traditional open methods. And, but we do know, the key thing is that we do know that once you get past 30 days, stenting have, has identical outcomes to surgery. And f- the third improvement is the vast improvement in best medical therapy. When I w- did my MD research in the European Carotid Surgery Trial Office in the 1980s, best medical therapy was basically stop smoking and take an aspirin. The introduction of better hypertension control, statins, and now combination antiplatelet therapy have greatly reduced the risk of stroke in patients who present with a TIA or stroke. Thank you, Professor Naylor. That was really nice to hear from you. And now uh, I would like to ask Professor Debus, so what is uh, the annual hospital or individual surgeon volume needed to maintain competence and safety for performing either carotid endarteretomy or carotid stenting in symptomatic patients, in your opinion? Thank you for this very important question. This, this is a topic um, which came up actually early in this century. Um, I think it was introduced by Bergmeier, who first looked for the evidence on volume of hospital to different kinds of surgery, including carotid surgery, actually. So since then, we are thinking about hospital and surgeons' volume. There has been many uh, trials and um, communications written and published to this topic. And I would like to highlight one of uh, one from Abu Rama, 
who um, nicely showed up in a large retrospective study that volume, surgeon's volume, definitely plays a role. He combined low volume surgeons, meaning surgeons doing uh, less than 10 carotid procedures per year with high volume surgeons, meaning surgeons performing more than 30 carotid endarterectomies per year in symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. And he nicely showed that there is a significant um, relationship in favor of having high volume surgeon operated. The hospital itself doesn't play a large role in carotid surgery. It is more dependent primarily to the surgeon himself. This is different to other procedures like maybe pancreatic surgery or aortic surgery, um, which needs a center with specified disciplines working all together for cardiovascular. But here we have a highly surgeon-depending procedure, which nicely shows that uh, high volume is of benefit. In addition, there was a um, nice subgroup analysis comparing general surgeons with vascular surgeons, pointing out that the specialty vascular surgery also is associated with better results than general surgery. So go to an hospital with a, with a vascular surgeon who performs at least 30 procedures per year. Thank you very much. That's a very straightforward message for all of the audience. And now going back to Professor Naylor. So Nowadays, with improvement of surgical techniques, do you think that uh, 6% 30-day stroke death rate threshold for performing either carotid endarterectomy or carotid stenting in symptomatic patients should be reduced? Actually, both the 6% threshold for symptomatic and the 3% threshold for asymptomatic patients. And we, in our first draft, we had uh, recommended that the 30-day risk for the asymptomatics be reduced to 2%. But that met with a surprising amount of hostility from the reviewers because they asked, where's the evidence? Where is the evidence? Should it be 2.5, 2.25, you know, whatever. So but we felt it was reasonable to retain the 6% threshold especially given that the majority of symptomatic patients now undergo their interventions within seven to 14 days of symptom onset. And we felt that if perhaps we'd reduced it to 4%, there was a risk that we could introduce risk aversion attitudes among surgeons, i.e. in order to get better outcomes, you slightly delay your intervention, whereas intervening early prevents much more in the way of strokes. Now, the German and Austrian guidelines and the European Stroke Organization guidelines have reduced the risk threshold to 4%. And that's been the headline picked up. But this is in hospital uh, death and stroke, not 30 day. And about 20% of all perioperative events occur after discharge. So a 4% in hospital risk is more or less equivalent to a 6% 30 day risk. This subject will again be addressed in the next set of guidelines. It is actually a remark, and it seems intuitive just to reduce the risk threshold, but actually it's very complicated. And when you start looking at published meta-analyses, the risks seem unfeasibly low. And then you do a randomized trial with people who have their track records checked and they have much higher risks. You know, it's very difficult to know exactly where we're coming from. Yeah, definitely right. Thank you, Professor Naylor. So now, uh, one uh, maybe provocative and interesting question for uh, Professor Debus. 
So since you're expert in this field, so in your opinion, what is the effectiveness of the low dose of rivaroxaban plus aspirin versus aspirin alone in patients presenting with a recently symptomatic carotid stenosis? Thank you, Peter. Again, a striking question. But honestly, I need to answer with, I don't know. There is still not real evidence about specific this situation of a um, patient's being acute symptomatic. Although the large trials, at least partially, have included a subgroup of patients with carotid stenosis overall. I refer first to the COMPASS trial, which, however, was a trial on stable PAD patients with a subset of uh, patients, almost 1,000, um, with carotid artery stenosis, but they were, although symptomatic, not acute symptomatic and asymptomatic. And a specific subset analysis on these patients is still missing, and we are working on it, and hopefully we will have some results soon. In addition to the COMPASS trial, there are two ongoing registry trials, the ZATOC and the ZATOA trial, who also include patients with carotid artery stenosis. Those trials are ongoing and we are awaiting the results also. However, in general, patients with PAD, and I include patients uh, with carotid artery stenosis into this subset by using this wording uh, by the European cardiologists. We know this is uh, actually not accurate for us. That's what's, what they mean with this. This combination of rivaroxaban in low dose with aspirin has a very clear overall benefit for patients with these diseases, which refers to an overall reduction of major acute limp and major acute cardiac events. So those patients have less stroke, less acute ischemia, less um, acute heart attacks. So I assume this may also address being addressed to, carot uh, to patients with acute carotid artery stenosis, but still it's an estimate and not based on evidence. Yes. Thank you, Professor Bruce. I hope that uh, recently we're going to have this evidence, which I suppose I, are going to be very interesting. So, Professor Naylor, I would like to ask you, in patients undergoing mechanical thrombectomy after acute ischemic stroke, who should undergo synchronous carotid artery stenting uh, to treat tandem intracranial internal carotid artery stenosis, and uh, for how long? And if at all, should uh, carotid artery stenosis or end arteriotomy be deferred in this group of patients? There have been registry studies. There was an audit done of uh, over 500 stroke physicians around the world, and they were completely split on uh, when to offer a tandem procedure at the same time. The Titan randomized trial is actually addressing this as we speak, and uh, we will have to hope that we will get a better answer based on that. But we've, we spent a lot of time thinking about this in the guidelines writing group. And intuitively, while we await the publication of Titan, yes, for a, a synchronous tandem intervention would be if you've done your mechanical thrombectomy and there's very poor anti-grade flow uh, up the internal carotid artery after, after a successful intracranial mechanical thrombectomy, or if there's poor collateralization via the circle of Willis after a successful mechanical thrombectomy so that the other vessels can't take over the inflow. Uh, no 
to a tandem would be if you've got poor intracranial revascularization after mechanical thrombectomy and good filling of the ipsilateral intracranial vessels via the vertebrals and the contralateral carotid uh, following the mechanical thrombectomy and also if you have large volume infarcts. So that beyond that, I don't think we can speculate because it's such a new subject and we need an awful lot more quality information. Remember that publication bias means that people tend to publish good results. They don't tend to publish their disasters. So if there's an increased risk of intracranial hemorrhage associated with the double procedure and the dual antiplatelet therapy, then those results don't tend to get published. Very straightforward, and thank you for this. And we are waiting eagerly for a TITUS trial. So now, going back to Professor Debus, do you think that uh, carotid and arterectomy under local regional anesthesia is, is safer than carotid artery stenting in symptomatic patients with significant cardiac and pulmonary comorbidity? Well, I think certain conditions um, may play a role for a possibly higher complication rate in terms of stroke intraoperatively, in terms of, well, um, according to local regional anesthesia. And there have been trials looking for specific conditions being associated with a higher risk, which is, for instance, hypertension and also symptomatic carotid artery stenosis. So those patients are at risk for needing shunting interoperatively and um, having a more complex or complicated postoperative course. Overall, the largest and I think still the single randomized trial, the GALA trial, showed actually equivalence overall for the patients um, in terms of local regional or general anesthesia. So it's actually merely up to the team being in charge uh, for those patients to use local regional or general anesthesia. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Debus. And now, Ross Neller, there is a provocative question. Um, do you think that there is uh, any surgical indication in patients with uh, near occlusion presenting with stroke or uh, transitory ischemic attack? Uh, well, the short answer to that is yes. I think we need to just go back and ask ourselves how this controversy arose. A secondary analysis of data from NASA and ECST, when all the angiograms were remeasured and they were all measured using the NASA measurement system, showed that as the severity of the extracranial stenosis increased up to 90 to 95% stenosis, that there was a dramatic reduction in five-year risk of stroke. But once you got to what was called the near, chronic near occlusions or sub-occlusions or string signs, there's a whole load of names for them there was no benefit at three, five, or eight years. And that was why this 2017 guidelines recommended against intervening in patients with chronic near occlusion. Now, there have been a number of editorials. There's been a couple of new uh, registry studies published, and these are all summarized in the 2023 guidelines. And so that, yes, there are questions about the appropriateness, but I think we're possibly dealing with two different entities. After Peter Rothwell's seminal paper in 2003, I actually stopped operating on uh, people with chronic near occlusion. And those were people with a tiny little systolic spike, peak systolic velocity and no end diastolic velocity and a tiny weevily little channel going up to the skull base. And, you know, it's easy to say I've, I've never been asked to reconsider on somebody who's come back with a stroke because that's not really good science. But well, however, one of the things that we have learned 
when you intervene in the acute period, the first seven days in particular after symptom onset, uh, we're an ultrasound based unit. And what we found was that the, the sonographers were saying, look, there's this tiny little thread channel looking just like a, a near occlusion, but the peak for systolic velocities are three, 400 and the end diastolic velocities are high. And if you do a CT angiogram on these people, there is always or almost always a reconstructable vessel. What's the simplest answer to your question? I think if you get recurrent symptoms despite best medical therapy and you've got a, a near occlusion, then I think you should be considered for intervention. At present, 2023 guidelines do not recommend routine interventions in patients with near occlusion, but if they develop recurrent symptoms, yes. Thank you, Professor Naylor. So now, Professor Debus, I would like to ask, actually, is there a, a role for transcarotid stenting in the first two weeks after symptoms onset? And are there any uh, procedural risks uh, of the same? Well, um, it is, first of all, um, this is a very interesting uh, technique and technology because it's associated, first of all, with opening up uh, the situs. But then um, by using TCAR, you perform flow reversal. So you do this in order to minimize the risk for central embolization. And uh, obviously, the results from the, from the first trials showed that the risk for this condition is extremely low and uh, definitely comparable with classic open surgery. However, for me as a surgeon, I don't really see the benefit for opening up and then doing the procedure without opening the, the carotid and don't having the morphology of the stenosis in front of you and uh, keep it closed and still have a certain risk of any morphology for morphological changes with, with are not addressed really as if you uh, open up, do a end arterectomy under um, magnification control and um, fix everything to make it clean inside. So nevertheless, the procedure is associated with a very low complication rate. And even one year post-op results are published now, and they see with a 0.6% stroke rate after one year, this obviously is a durable procedure, at least in the midterm, postoperatively. Certainly, we'll, we'll need to have longer, longer lasting results. But so far, it is a promising method. Very interesting to note um, is that very early after in implementation to the market, this method was reimbursed already in the, in the USA. So there are the highest numbers coming from, and um, we'll see what time will matter. Thank you. Definitely interesting technique, and we'll see uh, how are the long-term results. And now I'd like to ask um, Professor Mailer, how long should the surgeon wait after the intervention, intravenous thrombolysis to perform carotid end arterectomy when encountering uh, symptomatic extracranial carotid artery disease? What is your opinion? That's an interesting subject, and the writing group, again, specifically addressed this because since we published the 2017 guidelines, uh, the SVSVQI published the results of a registry which suggested that the sooner you offered carotid endarterectomy after intravenous thrombolysis, the higher the stroke rate. And this corroborated a, a very small study uh, done in the US, which found identical results. Now, interestingly, a, an even bigger registry from the UK 
did not find that clear-cut association. So we commissioned a systematic review and meta-analysis on this subject, and this was led by Stavros Kakos. And what he showed us, I mean, it was a very elegant and complex statistical analysis, but the findings of a meta-regression analysis of all the data showed that if you performed endarterectomy within three days of lysis completion, there was a 13% death and stroke rate. It fell to 10% at four days and only fell within the accepted 6% risk threshold at between six and seven days. So that was why we didn't recommend that everybody should delay interventions for seven days, but we, we said that a delay of six days should be considered. Now, the question is, is that applicable to everybody? Because we also know that there's a risk of recurrent stroke. And there's only been one published study on this, and this was from Helsinki, and they showed a 4% recurrent stroke risk in the first five days after completing thrombolysis. But those risks are much less the risks of the uh, procedural complications. What do I think will happen? Well, I, th I think, should it apply to all patients or only those with larger volume infarcts or uncontrolled hypertension? I think if you've got somebody who makes a very rapid recovery with no neurological deficit and minimal infarction on CT and no hemorrhagic transformation, I suspect you would probably intervene within six days of lysis completion. But we, we introduced this recommendation just to bring people aware of the new information that is now there and that there is a rationale for perhaps delaying for a few days after lysis completion. Thank you, Professor Nero. Very straightforward. I would like to ask uh, both of you, actually the new ESVS guidelines for the management of carotid and vertebral disease have recently been released and are uh, available online. So what are, in your opinion, the main new recommendations in the uh, new guidelines that will impact current clinical practice? I've got two. The first is that we're the first to stimulate the debate on early prescribing of combination antiplatelet therapy after TIA and stroke onset. Uh, surgeons are a bit too focused on reducing the perioperative risk, and they don't think that any strokes that happen between being uh, referred and undergoing surgery count, but they do. And there is now very clear evidence from three huge randomized trials that early prescribing of clopidogrel and aspirin uh, as soon as possible after uh, symptom onset, provided that hemorrhage has been excluded on CT scan, significantly reduces early recurrent stroke. Now, there's very little published literature on dual antiplatelet therapy during endarterectomy. Uh, there has been a recent meta-analysis published in the uh, European Journal suggesting that it didn't reduce perioperative uh, complications and it increased perioperative bleeding. Now, you've got to be careful about this. The dual antiplatelet therapy, our unit has done an enormous amount of research on this subject, and the only perioperative stroke it will prevent is the early postoperative thrombotic stroke. It won't prevent anything else, so you can't expect it to hugely reduce the overall risk. And more importantly, if you do use dual antiplatelet therapy, it is absolutely essential that you have an aggressive policy of treating post-endarterectomy or post-stenting hypertension. Now, this whole subject raised another issue, and that is the physicians now, nine guidelines around the world are recommending early institution of dual antiplatelet therapy after ischemic TIA and stroke but only four guidelines, include ours, make any mention about perioperative dual antiplatelet therapy. 
and the others basically said it's, it's an individual decision, whereas we said that you should consider dual antiplatelet therapy during endarterectomy, but that it was vital that your unit had made this decision now, i.e. so that when a patient comes in, the stroke physicians are not debating about whether they can or cannot start this patient on dual antiplatelet therapy because it takes 10 days to wash out the clopidogrel if you insist on it being stopped. If, if you're prepared to consider dual antiplatelet therapy to prevent early recurrent stroke before, end of it, before surgery and in the periodic period, then the new guidelines support that decision. If you are still minded to perform on monotherapy, then we recommend the use of aspirin. The second is we have really provided greater clarity on a number of practical issues that were raised by people in response to the 2017 guidelines. So for example, we've now got a section on free floating thrombus. We've got a section on carotid webs. We've got a section on how to manage anticoagulation and antiplatelet strategies in patients who present for interventions who are already on long-term anticoagulation. And we're the first guideline to actually specifically address that. Yes, you'll find some guidelines which say you should stop the vitamin K antagonists so many days pre-op, you don't need to stop the DOACs. But what you've got to remember is that our patients need antiplatelet therapy. And therefore, there's a complicated prescription uh, period for when do you stop the anticoagulation? And when do you start the antiplatelet? When do you stop the antiplatelet and restart the anticoagulation? And I'm really pleased we've made the first effort Thank you, Professor Nero. And you, Professor Debus? Well, yes, um, although I'm not part of the actual writing group of these current guidelines, I have been in, in, in the former ones. And I would like to highlight a title which um, Ross Naylor gave on it in Copenhagen in our meeting 2016 to exactly this topic, the fight against error. This is actually a fantastic uh, example for fighting against error. We have so much evidence uh, generated for specific techniques in open surgery, for including endovascular surgery, for addressing best medical therapy, where we obviously, and Ross just pointed this out, we still have a lot of gaps to improve. Um, I, and I would also address here in terms of antithrombotic therapies, the combination of antithrombotic and anticoagulants with with low-dose rivaroxaban, which possibly also has a positive effect for our patients, so that there is merely no surgical procedure with a higher evidence on what we should do and where we should do which kind of technique. There are obviously certain morphological entities which certainly benefit from endovascular therapies, other benefit from open surgery, and I think by using and including all those technologies within a center where high volume surgery and intervention is possible, we can overall improve our results even more as we already did. Thank you. Thank you both for this uh, very interesting and wonderful discussion. I I'm sure that uh, this is going to be a very interesting uh, discussion that many uh, listeners would like to hear. So lastly, uh, we would like to take a moment to introduce a new feature, which some of you uh, might have already noticed, and that is called the e-library topic of the month, uh, where we announce the new chapter of the virtual vascular and uh, add great additional videos and podcasts from the e-library. 
this email goes out to all ESVS members. So if you're not a member yet, subscribe now and don't miss out uh, our great uh, educational content. Mm -hmm.